This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 this morning. Um, If you are new uh, today, we are in the midst of a study of the book of of Romans. Um, And so we are at chapter 10, and we're going to look this morning at verses 5 through 10. Romans 10, and beginning with verse 5. this, This passage is all about the rescue, the salvation. When you see that word salvation, in scripture, the, the Greek word there really has the meaning of deliverance or rescue. And we have been on the receiving end of such a great salvation. We're talking about that this morning. Romans chapter 10 and uh, beginning with verse 5. Romans 10 and beginning with verse 5. You'll stand in honor of God's word as we look at it together. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that as we've, we've already heard sung um, just a, a moment ago, that as believers that we are hidden in your righteousness. And we know that as this text tells us, we could never establish our own righteousness. Our righteousness, the scripture says, is like filthy rags. We thank you that a, a perfect savior, a perfectly righteous Savior has been provided and that through faith in him we are united to him and that we stand before a holy God like you not based on our own righteousness but in his that our lives are hidden in his righteousness and as we sung together a few minutes ago that that your mercy is more our sins they are many but your mercy is more it's all about Jesus it's all about what he's done it's all about the salvation that he has accomplished. And so we pray that you would help us to to see in just a a deeper way this morning the extent of the rescue that you have given to us and that we would leave here with a passion in our hearts to share that with others. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. On June 27th, 1976, Air France Flight 139 took off from Paris bound for Tel Aviv. There were 246 passengers on board, the vast majority of them Jewish and Israeli. 
The plane made a scheduled stop in Athens where they picked up 58 more passengers, which unfortunately included four terrorists. Shortly after takeoff from Athens, the terrorists hijacked the plane and diverted it to Entebbe, Uganda, which at the time was ruled by a dictator named Idi Amin, who had been in on the plot from the very beginning. Upon their arrival in Uganda, ominously the the Jewish passengers and the Israeli passengers were separated from the other passengers and the terrorists said that they would begin killing Jewish hostages if the Israeli government did not release convicted terrorists from their prisons. Israel stalled for about a week, but all the while, behind the scenes, their military, the IDF, and their intelligence agency, the Mossad, was planning a daring rescue operation. It took place on July 4th, 1976, our own nation's bicentennial. So while we were celebrating Our freedom here, hostages were being freed in Uganda. It was was amazing. About a hundred Israeli commandos flew over 2,500 miles, landed at the airport in Entebbe, and they, they managed to rescue all but three hostages and lost only one Israeli soldier. That was Jonathan Netanyahu, the brother of Benjamin Netanyahu, the the prime minister of Israel. It was one of the most daring and remarkable rescue operations in history. But as believers, we have been on the receiving end of the greatest rescue operation because we were held hostage by sin and death. And Jesus came and took sin and death on himself that we might be saved. Such a great salvation we have in Christ. And this passage is just one of the clearest passages that tells us about that. The first thing that we see here is the impossibility of salvation through law. The impossibility of salvation through law. And we see that in verse five. Let's look at it together. Paul says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Of course, the problem is that none of us live by them perfectly or anything close to perfectly. And God is holy. And he doesn't grade on a curve. And so therefore, if you're going to be saved by establishing your own righteousness, then you better not mess up. Of course, the problem is that we are chronic (laughs) messer-uppers. And the law cannot rescue us from our messed-up-ness. 
Let's uh, look back at chapter 3 and verse 20 and, and see the purpose of God's law um, that we saw there in, in chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, God gave us his law to show us our sin, to give us knowledge of our sin, but God's law was never intended to give us a right standing before God. That's what it means to be justified. God's law was never intended to save anybody. It was never intended to give anybody a right standing before God. So what does give us a right standing before God? Or who gives us a right standing before God? Let's look at the verses that follow that. In verses 21 through 24 of chapter 3, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now that great text uh, tells us uh, two things that sort of really uh, lay the groundwork for our text here in Romans 10. First of all, it tells us that, that righteousness, perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ is, not, is, is, is something that is given to us as a gift. We cannot establish our own righteousness before God because we're all sinners. But there was one who was not a sinner. There was one who lived the perfectly righteous life that we could never live. And when we place our faith in Christ, we are united to Christ and his perfect righteousness is credited to our account. We are clothed in his righteousness. As we heard song a while ago, we are hidden. Our lives are hidden in his righteousness. Praise God. The second thing that these verses tell us is that the invitation to be a part of this, the invitation to receive his salvation, his perfect righteousness, is extended to all. What does it say here in verse 22? It says it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who? For all who believe. For there is no distinction. It doesn't matter whether you come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background. It doesn't matter whether you're, uh, uh, what ethnicity you are, you know, black, brown, or white, or rich, or poor, or uh, man, or woman. It doesn't matter whether you've lived a relatively good life or whether your life has been an utter chaos. You were invited to come. You were invited to receive the salvation as a gift that has been provided through the work of, of Christ and we are all sinners in need of that salvation because what does it say in verse 23? For who? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so therefore it is impossible for us to have salvation through law because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. So we see here first of all 
the impossibility of salvation through law in verse 5. And then in verses 6 and following, we see the availability of salvation through faith. The availability of salvation through faith. Let's check out verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy to show that just as God's law was not something that was hidden from the Israelites but available to them, that the gospel, or what he calls here the word of faith, okay, which is the good news of the gospel, it is not hidden from us. It is not meant to be hidden. <laughs> no, it's not. The gospel is not something that's hidden. The gospel is something that is available to us. And in fact, not only is it available, but it is accessible. It's easy to reach because God has already reached out to us. And so the gospel is accessible. You know, we don't have to Paul says here, uh, we don't have to, as he says in verse 6, you know, ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. No, Christ has already come down to us. He says, we don't have to, to descend into the abyss to bring him up. No, he's already been raised up. New Testament scholar Colin Cruz says this, no one is being asked to bring about an incarnation or a resurrection. One is asked only to accept in faith what has already been done. It's done. <laughs> we don't ascend up to try to bring him down. He's come down. <laughs> right? We don't go down to try to bring him up. He's already been raised up. And so salvation is accessible. It is near. In fact, he says it's as close as your mouth and your heart. It's right, right there. Um, Cassidy and I went to play uh, tennis a while back, and, um, and usually when we play tennis, I, I put my phone down on the side of the court uh, where we're playing. And on that particular day, I, uh, we, you know, we, we, we left the court and uh, got, got home, and suddenly I couldn't find my phone, and I was terrified. <laughs> that I had left my phone uh, lying on the, the court, uh, the tennis court behind Farm Fresh. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I've got to run back up there. Somebody's going to steal my phone. So I go tearing out of the house uh, and, 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 and go up there and, I, and, and the phone where we were playing is not there. And there were some guys that were playing on a court, you know, two or three courts away. And I said, hey, did you know, did you all see like in the last, 10 or 15 minutes, like anybody messing around the court down there where we were, and they were like, well, yeah, we saw some little kids that had been down there. I'm like, oh, some kid is taking my phone. So, so then I go over to the playground area, because they, you know, and then I'm going around, and I'm, I see some little kids out there, so I'm, I'm going up, and I'm interviewing moms and grandmas, okay, and, 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 I, and I'm, I'm saying, like, really, really, you know, nicely, hey, you know, did, did your little 
one, were they kind of over there at the court? And of course, inwardly, I'm asking, did your kid steal my phone? Um, And so it was awkward, (laughs) to say the least, and I got absolutely nowhere. So, you know, I drive home. I am absolutely, I'm chastising myself. You know, how could you be so stupid to leave your phone on the court? And as I pull into our driveway, Melissa is backing out of our driveway, and she says, I have your phone. It was on the bed where you left it when you came in from playing tennis. In fact, when I went tearing out of the house um, in order to, to, to do that, I had, it was like a foot away from me. I mean, like it was, it was right there. And Paul is saying here that salvation is right there. It's right there. It's right there. It, it's, in, it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. In fact, what does he say here in verse 9? He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is just one of the clearest verses in the New Testament about what it means to be a Christian. How does one become a Christian? Well, it's about internal conviction and external confession. Internal conviction an external confession. First of all, internal conviction. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, about 80% of Americans would say that they believe that. But you know how most of them believe that? They, they believe that the way that they believe that George Washington was our first president. In other words, it is mental assent to a fact about Christ. But you see, mental assent to a fact about Christ doesn't save anybody. Even if it's the right fact. We are saved by believing in Christ, which involves commitment. It involves trust, personal trust in him. Yeah, I could tell you that, you know, it's, it's 34 miles from here to the ocean front. I looked it up on Google Maps. 34 miles. And you could say, well, yeah, okay, I believe that. I accept that. That doesn't do anything to change your life. That, that, just like believing George Washington was the first president doesn't change your life. One bit, you know, believing that it's 34 miles from here, here to the ocean front doesn't change anything. It alters nothing in your life. It's the way that most people in our culture believe in Jesus. Not in a saving way. Yeah, it's mental assent to a fact. That's it. Doesn't change anything and it doesn't save. But what if you were in a boat off the ocean front and your boat turned over and you were flailing away in the ocean and you were drowning and I was in a I pulled up in a boat and I reached out my hand to you and I said, take it, take it, I'll save you. To believe in that moment is is absolutely life-changing, isn't it? And see, to believe in Jesus means to put your life into his hand. It means to, to take hold of him by faith and to, and to cast your helpless self upon him 
and what he's done for you in the gospel. That's what it means to believe in, in your heart. And then there's external confession. There's internal conviction, but then there's external confession. If the internal conviction is real, if you really believed in your heart, then there's going to be external confession. You're going to confess with your mouth. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this is really not two things. It's one thing. Because if, if, if belief in the heart is real, there will be confession with the mouth. We will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, we need to see a couple of very important things about this. First of all, for believers to make this confession, Jesus is Lord, in the first century, was a dangerous, loaded proposition. New Testament scholar uh, Michael Bird says this, what is provocative is that Paul writes these words to a cluster of house churches in the heart of the Roman Empire, living right under the emperor's nose and boldly declaring the lordship of a Jewish man executed by the Romans as a common criminal. It's provocative because the Roman emperor was the one hailed as curios, lord, across the empire. At the time Paul was writing, one can find inscriptions and papyri all attesting that Nero is Lord. Well, guess what? If Jesus is Lord, then Nero is not. And so when these early believers made the confession, Jesus is Lord, essentially they were also confessing the emperor is not Lord. That would get you killed. Let's bring that over into our own lives. If Jesus is Lord, then money is not. If Jesus is Lord, then your comfort and security are not. If Jesus is Lord, then popularity is not. If Jesus is Lord, then your job is not. If Jesus is Lord, then your family is not. To confess him as Lord means to smash our idols and to forsake all other lords. There's another thing that we need to see here about this confession, that Jesus is Lord. As Dr. N.T. Wright points out, in the minds of the early believers, the confession Jesus is Lord was linked to baptism. Because Jesus is Lord is the confession that the early believers would make at the time of their baptism. It's the way that we do it here. People are standing in the baptistry and they say, what, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. Okay, that's where it comes from. Because in the early church, Jesus is Lord was the formula that was associated, it was the confession with the mouth that believers would make when they were baptized. Now, there are a couple of implications from that. First of all, babies weren't making the confession, Jesus is Lord. 
right? And so in the New Testament, it's not babies that are being baptized. It's believers that are being baptized, believers that were old enough to make that confession, Jesus is Lord. And it was all believers who were making that outward confession. Listen, the New Testament knows nothing about so-called Christians who were silent about their faith. The Bible doesn't know anything about so-called Christians, you know, who are, who are, who are, not, uh, who are not baptized. It doesn't know anything about believers who, uh, who are not linked to a, part, to a local church because the confession, Jesus is Lord, that they would make at the time of their baptism, that was their entry into membership in the church. And so the concept that we have in America today of somehow, you know, believers who are silent about their faith, believers who aren't baptized, believers who are not a part of a local church, that did not exist in the Bible. It, I mean, it just, it's just, there's no biblical category for that. I mean, it was just understood that if your faith was real, you were going to be open about it. Right, you were gonna say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm gonna be baptized as a follower of Jesus. I'm gonna be a part of the local church. And they did all of that. They did it openly, they did it unashamedly, and they did it at great personal risk. And, and so, biblically, like, <laughs> if somebody has really believed in their heart, that's gonna come out. <laughs> They're gonna confess with their mouth openly and unashamedly, if it's real. Jesus says very clearly in, in, uh, in uh, Matthew, first of all, let's look at what John Murray says about this. New Testament scholar John Murray, he says this, confession without faith would be vain, but likewise, faith without confession would be shown to be spurious. And Jesus says exactly this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to invite you today to come to Jesus Christ if you don't know him. I want to invite you to, 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 to believe in your heart. That, that means that you, you personally place your life into his hand. I want to invite you to, to confess with your mouth. And that, that begins with believer's baptism. It could be that you're here today and you consider yourself a believer in Jesus, but you've never taken that, that biblical step. And it is a biblical step. This is not a man-made tradition. This is, this is a biblical command straight from Jesus that every believer is to be baptized, to op openly confess Christ. If you're here today and you need to be baptized as a believer, listen, we, let us know about that. We will set up a time for you. We'll come alongside you and just counsel with you about the full 
meaning of that. And so today, if if you've never believed in your heart in Jesus as Savior, turn to him right now. Turn to him. Say, Lord, I turn from trying to do life my own way, and I turn to you. I place my trust, all of my confidence. I rest completely in what Jesus has done. I, I know I'm helpless to save myself, but I believe that Jesus died and rose again to save me. And Lord Jesus, right now, I turn to you. I trust in you as my Savior and Lord. For those of you that need to confess openly with your mouth, for those of you who are believers, but yet you've been committing the sin of silence about Christ, would this be a time of commitment for you to be more open and bold about your faith in Christ? For some of you, that means to be baptized as a believer. So Father, we lift up this time of invitation to you. Lord, you know exactly where we are in our lives. You know the needs in our lives today. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to each of us right where we are and convict us where we need to be convicted. Change us where we need to change. That we might reflect your glory in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.